Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by well-known author, lecturer, and philosopher Gary Lockman to discuss his latest publication, Dreaming Ahead of Time, Experiences with Precognitive Dreams, Synchronicity, and Coincidence. Topics covered include the nature of time, the relationship between time and consciousness, and eruptions of eternity into the everyday. Also, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts or subscribe to the YouTube channel. That is where you view this. Be sure to hit that like button and notification bell. Your support is truly appreciated. Gary Lockman is a well-known author, lecturer, and philosopher. His many books about the links between consciousness, culture, and the Western esoteric tradition include Lost Knowledge in the Imagination, The Quest for Hermes Trismegistus, Caretakers of the Cosmos, and his most recent publication, Dreaming Ahead of Time, Experiences with Precognitive Dreams, Synchronicity, and Coincidence. He writes for several journals in the U.S. and U.K. and lectures widely. Gary's books have been translated into more than a dozen languages, and he has appeared in several radio and television documentaries. Gary was a founding member of the rock group Blondie and is a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee. Gary, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you very much for having me on. Yes, well, thank you. It's uh, quite a privilege for me. I have been following your work for quite a while now. Uh, I believe the first book of yours that I read was The Politics of the Occult. Um, and I also have and read the uh, Jung the Mystic. Uh, so I'm very much looking forward to this. Um, oh. or, uh, so let's go down with it. Then. Yeah, yeah, let's yeah. Go. Yeah, so um, <laughs> our focus, of course, is going to be your most recent publication, Dreaming Ahead of Time. Mm. And this travels down a lot of uh, paths. And, um, you know, there are a lot of topics that can be covered here, you know, dreams and dreaming, precognition, time itself, uh, consciousness, coincidence and synchronicity. But I thought I'd start with precognition. Uh, you note that precognitive experiences are reported more frequently than any other type of ESP. Um, but you also observe that the fact that precognition happens should stop us in our tracks. And I wanted to ask you why. Well, just think about it. It's something that shouldn't happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, maybe by now we're inured to how strange the idea is because, um, I don't know, you know, there's generations, I guess, grown up with notions of time travel and, you know, the, the hardest thing on streaming on, on most of the things that at least I can see are time travel. I mean, the other two things are serial killers and dystopian future scenarios. <laughs> uh, if you, I, I, I think the hit show would be, uh, you know, it's, a time traveling serial killer from the dystopian future, but somebody is probably working on that already. Um, well, you know, I mean, it's just, um, it's one of those things when you think about it, well, that really shouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I mean, and uh, <laughs> in a way, um, I mean, it has stopped me in my tracks, at least enough to do the book. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've been recording them for, for, for many years. And um, at the same time, it is sort of like, okay, this does happen. And well, I don't want to say it's sort of something that um, the odd thing about it is that 
the actual sorts of dreams, uh, not only in my own experience, but apparently, um, according to most uh, people who recognize this, even going back as far as um, sort of the mid 19th century and, and a pre-society for the psychical, you know, uh, a pre-society for the you know study of psychical research, society for psychical research, um, women in Catherine Crow wrote this wonderful book called The Night Side of Nature. And this is about so 1840s or 50s, something like that. But she even says in there, like all, all the reports that she's gathered of sort of these sorts of dreams. Um, I'll, I'll make a distinction between precognitive and prophetic or, you know, premonitory sorts of dreams is that they tend to be about everyday kinds of things. And unless you paid attention to the dreams, you wouldn't notice that they happen. And the distinction I'm making is that the, the two sorts of future dreams that we all hear about are, are the two Ds. It's the, the, the disasters in the Derby, you know. So you hear about, you know, 9-11 and you hear about Aberfan. The Aberfan was the, this, you know, tragic uh, catastrophe in the 1960s uh, here in Wales um, when uh, a coal slip, you know, came down the hill and um, it engulfed the, the, the town and, and uh, a school and many of the, the fatalities were children. And um, someone involved with, you know, taking you know, care of stuff after it happened, um, so, somehow got onto noticing that people seem to have had dreamed it was going to happen, you know, beforehand. And he even got one of the newspapers, the Evening Standard, to uh, conduct a kind of survey about it. And I forget the number of, you know, uh, entries that came in, but there were, you know, many, 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 and, and one was even from one of the fatalities, a, a, a little girl who was in the school that got engulfed, and she had dreamt something the, the night before, or whatever, that just this black stuff was coming down the hill, and had told her mother that morning, and so on, that it happened, or, you know, 9-11, um, there's, um, among many things uh, associated with that, there's an artist named David Mendel, who um, painted uh, paintings five years in advance, and then series of others you know increasingly getting closer to when it actually took place all depicting that, that happening so we we hear about those and we also hear about the people who dream winners at, at the races um there's a uh, in uh, in one of the people i talk about in the books guy named john godley who later lord kilbracken um and um he dreamed a series of of winners at the races at the horses and he himself wasn't a punter as they say he wasn't somebody who was at the racetrack that often but he sort of had these dreams and they were insistent and people around him started winning money so he actually finally won some himself and then he got himself through that the job on some of the one of the newspapers writing a kind of you know column about this so you know those are the ones we sort of hear about but the ones that i have my own experience have been um, these sorts of things where, unless I paid attention to the dreams, unless I'd written the dreams down and paid attention to what was you know, happening in my life, I wouldn't have noticed it. So I, it's not, I, I, I never wake up thinking, oh God, I've had this dream and I have to call somebody and tell them, you know, don't do this or, or whatever, <laughs> or myself, or oh, I'm sorry, I can't go on this trip. No, it's not that, it's that later on in the day or the next day, or maybe next week, something very, very clearly having to do with that dream will come up. And in the book, I, there's some accounts where there's years, you know, in between. So, I mean, it can be that stretched out. Um, so, and I mean, that's sort of the reason for doing the book, because that, it, I mean, you know, how can it happen? I, I, I know we're all, we all, we talk about time loops and, you know, we, there's so many time travel shows on 
as I said, on, on you know, uh, Netflix and a variety of things like that. So it seems like, you know, what's the big deal? But actually, when you think about it, 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 it really shouldn't happen. And um, it's, that was kind of the trigger for a general kind of reflection on uh, dreams themselves, which are strange enough, the symbolic language that uh, they use to communicate, which um, as far as I'm concerned, that's what's happening. There's, there's some kind of communication going on from some, well, one wants to say some part of you where it's actually you are part of it. And I don't even want to say it because that's, you know, right, right, right. <laughs> assuming that it's, it's a kind of a thing rather than a who or what. But any case, I mean, all of those things come into it, you know, times and dreams. And so I, I say at the beginning of the book, you know, the reason why I, I wound up um, writing it was that I was, uh, I gave a talk here in London at uh, Brompton Cemetery, which is a famous cemetery in the west side of London here. And um, it was a talk about hypnagogia, which is this in-between state between sleep and waking. And it's a state that often is, is associated often with sort of paranormal activity, uh, one of which is precognition. And um, so at the end of this talk, I tagged on a few accounts of precognitive dreams and some of my own. And I said, if, if you want to see if this is true for you, all you have to do is just start writing down your dreams. And the next day, I went on Twitter and the first thing I saw was someone had tweeted, uh, someone who had been at the talk had tweeted and they said, OMG, you know, with the exclamation points, it's true. And in the tweet, she managed to say, you know, I, I was at the talk and the guy said, you know, uh, you, you know, you can, the bits and pieces of the future turn up in your dreams. And all I had to do is write my dream down and it's true. And her dream was that um, she had picked a hedgehog up uh, off the street and put it on the pavement. Hedgehog is these strange animals that are, you know, uh, uh, randomly around here in, in the UK. And uh, so she it picked it up off the, off the road and put it on the sidewalk so it wouldn't get run over. And when she went onto Twitter that morning, the first thing she saw was a tweet about how to protect the hedgehogs. Mm. So it wasn't exactly, she didn't walk out the door and save a hedgehog, but the first thing she saw was something along those lines. And I explained in my reply that this is, this is what I call symbolic distortion, where mm -hmm. um, it's the future event, but it's subjected to the strange language that dreams speak in, which are or, or symbols, you know, rather than right. straightforward, you know, sequential, you know, uh, language we, we're used to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've had some precognitive dreams. I, I've also been recording my dreams for I don't know, probably 30 years or so now. And there have been instances where they're quite literal. Uh, like, for example, uh, applying for a job and being told, you know, thanks, but no thanks and getting the letter in the mail and having dreamt exactly that. And then a day or two later, getting the notice. Um, but then there are also dreams that I think are somewhat precognitive, not necessarily like the hedgehog, but they're so wrapped up in symbolism that it's kind of difficult to determine um, what the message is, you know, what the message mm. is. Uh, so I, you know, I'm, I'm very fascinated by it as well. And it does come to a couple of different 
things that are very slippery and very difficult to grasp onto. And one again is time, you know, what is time? And we have these different ideas and I don't expect you to give an answer what time it is. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's stump St. Augustine. So I, 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 I don't feel in any way, you know, it's right, like... right. Right. Well, but you know, the question I guess that I've been ruminating on uh, since reading your book is you talk about the flow of time. And what came to my mind was that this language of flow of time, it reminded me of how we speak about consciousness as a, like a stream of consciousness. And I was wondering if you could maybe speak a little bit about the connection between time and consciousness. Well, I would say ultimately time is a factor of consciousness. Okay. You know, time is as your consciousness is right. Um, so along those lines, but we say the flow of time. And that's one of the things that we immediately, that, that's a metaphor, but we right. think there, there's this stuff called time and it's kind of like, just, you know, it's, and that, you know, Newton um, mathematized that and this equal flow, e uh, equable flow of time throughout space. You know, so there's also sort of equal extension of space. You know, space is the stuff that's the same here and it's the same whatever over there. Um, and time likewise, uh, an hour here is an hour at the other side of the galaxy, you know, whatever along those times along those lines, as it were. Um, and th this kind of, I should say, kind of made official or, or uh, that, it's not, it's not as if no one had ever felt the notion of time flowing before that there's, there's, you know, because we know that things grow, you know, we ourselves, you know, born, we, you know, we get older, we, we die. So there's, there's, that's pro there's a process going on, you know, we see that in organic things. It's, um, you know, um, inorganic, things like mountains, um, they seem a bit more eternal to us, but even mountains over time erode. And so there is this kind of process going on, but for us at a certain level, you know, we have a certain idea of, you know, time's flow in that way. But the thing about saying time flows is that, okay, the metaphor is like, it's a river, but a river has banks, right? So where are the banks of time? And I don't mean all that time we've been saving <laughs> all the right. time where you've got it and it's earning interest, you know, oh, I'm saving time by doing XXX. So no, no, you're never, you're never saving. All that means is that you're doing more things, get, getting more stuff done, apparently or evidently, you know, um, in, in that time, which you could be devoting to something else. So that, that, that all of it's just, I mean, <laughs> It's a kind of old chestnut in philosophy. Yeah. Is there really time or is there no time and that kind of thing? But in a sense, I don't, I don't know if there is this stuff right. called time. It's, it's a way we have to talk about process. But um, if you're, you know, you're conscious. I mean, one of the, one of the great quotes, um, one of my favorite quotes about time comes from Aldous Huxley when he um, endorsed a perception and, you know, during his, you know, mescaline experience. Um, and one of the things he was asked uh, was, you know, what about time? And he sort of said, well, there seems to be quite a lot of it. 
<laughs> and I always thought, okay, yeah, that's a good, you know, sort of like, okay, you know, rather than like, you know, we usually, oh, I'm running out of it. And, you know, we have to go and we only have another 20 minutes or whatever it might be, some sort of thing. So, um, I mean, all that gets into sort of your consciousness is in a, in a different sort of mode. And um, we all know that, you know, um, th th there's a, a great subjective character. Oh, th this, you know, this goes, it's a famous debate between Bergson, Henri Bergson, um, French philosopher and, and um, Einstein, uh, I guess about a hundred years ago, uh, more or less. Um, and um, we're, you know, Bergson talked about duration, which is our subjective experience of time, which could be different than um, chronological time or the time that's measured, you know. But Einstein insisted that, no, no, the, the measurable time is the real time. And sadly, that seems to be the one that's kind of won out, um, that, that inner duration sort of experience, that, that, the, the, whole, the whole kind of interiority that Bergson and other philosophers and people that I write about in my books, and, and you know, I, I, I write about in, in, in uh, Dreaming Ahead of Time as well, it, it, it kind of seems to be increasingly marginalized by, you know, the technology that seems to be a sort of exteriorization of that interior world, you know, um, I, it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, can you say a little bit more? Well, um, I mean, I, I, I sort of don't want to say metaverse, but I mean, that, that, I, mean, oh, okay. I, which, yeah. which I, I haven't had an experience of that, but, right. um, but what I gather from it, it seems, you know, you could have this whole kind of imaginative uh, other okay. world, right. you know, again, I, 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 I only know it by kind of, you know, peripheral right. picking it up. So I don't know exactly what it is. So I may, I may be misinterpreting yeah. it, but it does seem, it is sort of this virtual of the world you can go into and you could have a whole community in this virtual of the world and you're all plugged in in that way. Um, whereas uh, this is something I was talking about with some of my students. I, I've been doing a course um, for the California Institute of Integral Studies um, about Western esotericism. And one of the things we were talking about is that, oh, that's all happening in the technical kind of uh, side, is it, where this sort of electronic or uh, computerized or digitalized sort of how should we say, a kind of exteriorized interiority. Everyone is plugged into this kind of imaginative other world. Um, not the imaginative other world that you know, is in there yourself. It's this other one that's you know, created for you. Mm -hmm. Whereas there's the possibility of being, being able to share that one, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Right, this right. is one of the things I talk about in the book and share dreams and mm -hmm. things of that sort. And um, you know, will there possibly be communities later on that manage to somehow do that? you know, um, in some way in a response to the increasing sort of, um, you know, technologized, uh, um, as I said, um, kind of, you sort of want to say artificial interiority, but um, in right. any case, any case, we're, we're sort of getting off the, the, yeah. the tangent here, but in any case. Yeah, well, I, I think that what I was initially thinking of is, um, I remember, watching uh, a recording from a uh, conference uh, many years ago uh, held at, I think, Arizona State on uh, consciousness. And it was uh, Susan Blackmore had, uh, in her conversation, said that she wanted to get rid of the metaphors that we use for consciousness. 
because she thought that, you know, this question of what is consciousness is, you know, that the metaphors that we're using are muddying the waters. And you wanted to get back into the question of well, what is it, you know, rather than thinking of it as a stream of consciousness, you know, get rid of that metaphor, what is it? And my initial question was, you know, couldn't we say the same thing about time? And it was interesting to me, and you kind of mentioned this a little bit, um, and maybe this is a coincidence, uh, but in the past week or so, I've seen two articles um, about uh, questioning time. Uh, one was saying that time was just non-existent, maybe. Uh, and the other one was saying that, well, maybe it exists, but it's just not fundamental. And what I began thinking about is that we we're in this position now with sort of a uh, reductive materialist vision within science, but the bugbear is always consciousness, you know, how to account for consciousness. And increasingly, we're seeing more voices saying, well, maybe this reductive materialist universe is not an accurate description. Maybe consciousness is fundamental. And what I was wondering about was if that is the case, wouldn't that somehow change how we think about time and maybe reformulate these questions about what time is? Well, I, I, as I said, I, I think time is, you know, um, directly, well, yeah, time is directly related to, you know, consciousness, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, particular, even in your everyday experience, you know, if you're bored right. out of your mind, you know, yes. <laughs> you know, five yeah. minutes is an eternity. If you're right, actually right. interested in something, it's something that's, you know, an hour goes by or two hours go by and you didn't realize it went by at all. So, I mean, right. it, it just in our everyday sort of experience, that's the case. And, mm -hmm. um, and these larger, you know, more metaphysical, ontological notions about it. I mean, I, um, but one, that's one of the things, you know, it's one of these things where it's inescapable at the same time, it's ungraspable. So it's, right. um, um, <clears throat> I'll be paraphrasing, I don't remember the exact quote from Alfred North Whitehead, who's an um, um, Anglo-American philosopher who's not as well known or as uh, read as he as he should be these days, but in, in in talking about sort of these fundamentals, you know, of our experience, he says they're they're sort of these imponderables that you know we can't we, we don't have anything any less um, ambiguous to use to explain them with. You you, you can only refer to them as something else that equally uh, eludes any kind of real explicit kind of explanation. So I mean, you know, I. I I've no, you know, the thing with consciousness is, I mean, think this whole thing with, you know, what is consciousness? Well, it, it matters. Do you want a definition or do you want a recognition? I, I can recognize it with no problem whatsoever. So I'm, I, I have no idea why everyone's asking what is consciousness. If you want a right. definition, like, well, I, well, <laughs> you right, know, right, right. I, I, I agree with Arnie Bergson when he said a definition will only make it more obscure. Mm. Um, you know, we know what it, it's one of these things, just like time, you know, you said right. it's, it's what is time? Well, that's the famous quote from St. Augustine who said, you know, if you do not ask the question, I know the answer. Right. So it's one of these things that we have an immediate kind of 
existential grasp of experience of but when we come to try to explain it or articulate it explicitly it slips through our fingers mm -hmm. but it, it takes a certain amount of time for even for that to happen you know, <laughs> so, you know what i mean yeah. oh my god there's no such thing as time and oh i've been at this for 45 minutes <laughs> now right <laughs> so you know it's it's so it, 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 it all depends on what level i mean and uh, in the book um i you know there's a chapter about time in that sense and in the sense where you know there's a variety of different experiences of it and culturally too um i talk about Ebert hall uh, wrote a wonderful book the dance of time and, and his experiences with um uh, native american right um uh, spending time with them and how um he tells a story of at one point he had to travel with a group of um you know native americans he's with to transport these horses from one place to another and if you're you know in a car zooming along in the highway would have maybe taken you know a few hours but they could only go at a certain rate blah 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 so it was very slow according to our usual kind of way of moving around but he said, being forced to go at that pace, the whole landscape took on a different, you know, um, uh, character for him. And he was looking at this mountain that they had sort of going around, and it it, it was it was a very different thing than you know just going by. And um, he said that after. Um, I forget how long. Well, I, th I think he's yeah, three days. It took him three days. I mean, he was on horseback and all that. So, but I, I, I related to a similar experience I had. But uh, I wasn't on horseback. But I had just um, when I was living in Los Angeles and working at the Bodhi Tree, I went on a holiday and I went up to the sequoias. You know, these gigantic trees in Northern California, and I rented a cabin um, for a, you know a week or so. But I, I, it took me three days to adjust to being there. Um, because even against my best wishes and best intentions, um, some part of me that was so used to having everything around me back in my flat, you know, my apartment or, you know, and just caught up in the usual day-to-day -day routine, it was suddenly, um, I want, I, the guy who drove up there wanted to go on holiday, but that part of me was, didn't know anything about that. And it was like, what the hell's going on? And it took a while for that to really adjust. And so it was only after about three days that I was in that environment that I could really walk through, you know, these avenues of the giants, these gigantic trees and really feel, uh, you know, in their presence and, and they themselves embody a whole other kind of time. You know, these trees are thousands of years old. Um, and, you know, we're nothing, you know, just sort of, you know, uh, going past them. So there's all that and um, a variety of different things. And, you know, we have more control over a sense of time. I mean, the, the, it happens passively in, in these precognitive dreams, you know, where bits and pieces of the future turn up. Um, and believe me, folks, if you, if, you, if you haven't, you know, done this, if you just start paying attention, trying to you know, remember your dreams, write them down, and over time, I bet you you will see that this happens, uh, but another sort of um, context we have more control over a sense of time, and that's one of, that's sort of an underlying kind of theme throughout the book in the sense of this exploration of it, which has you know more to do with well, actually we we you know our expectation and actual you know kind of engagement you know um, um, has more to do with what we actually experience as as times flow or times movement. 
than some, um, I should say, some kind of stuff or, 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 or some kind of law that's, you know, at work, you know, um, I, I don't know. I mean, we, we don't have the same control over gravity, put it that way. So Newton was, you know, sp spot on, as they say here, uh, on, on, on that one. But time is maybe a different sort of thing where we may have a bit more leeway with it than uh, Newton might have thought. I think that, you know, like you said, everyone has these experiences of duration. And one of the things that came to mind when you were speaking is, you know, you write about time travel and considering, and you write about how the impossibility of it, right? Uh, in a sense, but I'm curious about time travel and consciousness. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, the whole, just to get, yeah. Uh, well, one of the, you know, there's, there's some logical problems, I think, with right. physical time travel. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, um, well, one of the, one of is like, how long does it take to travel in time? Mm. So how long, if you go back a hundred years, how long does it take you to do that? Right. If it's not instantaneous, <laughs> it takes a certain amount of time yeah. for that to happen. And so that's another level of time that someone could invent a, you know, time. So, oh, in that, whatever, in that, in that 10 minutes, it takes you to travel. I can travel in that time, you know what I mean? So right. an infinite regress, or also, you know, the whole idea that you could go back to yesterday and meet yourself and invite yourself back into the time machine. And let's go back the day before yesterday. And there's you and then, oh, let's, let's invite him. We can't leave, right. leave him out. And you can keep collecting uh, more and more, uh, selves more and more of you because they are in this other time so it, it all gets a bit um you know but the whole other, I, I think you can travel in time and consciousness in that sense and this is one of the things i mean wells hg wells you know he's the he's the fame he's the guy who invented the time machine and all that and that, that sort of got the ball rolling as it were but in a later novel of his the shape of things to come um the character in that Philip Raven, he does travel in time, but he doesn't use a machine. It's through his dreams. And um, this is because Wells had read this book, uh, just as I had read it many, many years later, called An Experiment with Time, by a fellow named J.W. Dunn. And Dunn was an aeronautics engineer. He wasn't an occultist or spiritualist or anything like that, although later on it came out that he had more of an interest in it than he earlier led on to. But in, initially, when this book came out in the sort of late 1920s, um, he wasn't anything like that. And, but he discovered by accident uh, that he dreamt the future, or bits of the future turned up in his dream. And the initial, the initial dream was that uh, he was asleep and he was dreaming and he was having an argument with somebody about what time it was. There you go. Uh, and um, in the dream, Dunn was saying it was 4.30 and the other person was saying, no, it wasn't. And Dunn said, okay, to prove it, I'll pull, he takes out his pocket watches. Back in the day, we people had, you know, pocket watches. And um, the pocket watch said 4.30. And at that point in the dream, Dunn woke up and he thought, oh, I wonder what time it actually is now. So he gets over to his trousers and pulls out his pocket watch and the watch had stopped at 4.30. Uh, and he thought, oh, that's strange. It must have stopped earlier in the afternoon and I didn't recognize it. And subconsciously I did somehow. And the nagging thought, <laughs> I left my watch unwound, um, led to this dream. So, you know, it's a, you know, cause, causal effect kind of, you know, thing. 
And then he gave the watch just a little twist and he thought, I'll have to set it to the right time in the morning because it, you know, it, it was stopped. He didn't know, you know, it actually was that time. But then later on when he woke up, lo and behold, it had stopped at 4.30. So uh, it was at the right time when he woke up later. So that was odd, you know, and then he had a series of other dreams um, where something that was going to happen to him came up in advance. Uh, I guess the, the most um, impressive one was he dreamt that he was on an island and cracks and fissures were opening up um, on his feet and he saw steam, you know, you know, escaping from them. And he knew that the island, uh, there was going to be a volcanic eruption. And he was trying to convince the French authorities that they had to evacuate the 4,000 people that were on the island. And if they didn't, they would all be killed and so on and so on. And um, it wasn't until some time later that he actually realized what he had dreamt about. And he saw in the newspaper headline, and this was the eruption of Mount Pele on the island of Martinique. I think it was 1904, 1902 or something along those lines. And um, the, the French you know, were in, uh, in control of it. And um, the odd thing was that in the dream, he thought he had read in a newspaper headline that it was 4,000 people, but actually he had misread it because the actual newspaper headline that he later saw was 40,000. Although later on, you know, uh, the actual account was something like 30,000. But in any case, Dunn came to understand that he wasn't sort of hovering above this kind of temporal landscape and just seeing the future in the abstract, some objective future like Nostradamus or, you know, Criswell predicts or something like that. It was his own experience, what he was going to happen to him, but a few steps in advance. That's why the title of my book is Dreaming Ahead of Time. You just sort of a couple, a couple steps ahead of what you're actually going to encounter, it turns up in your dreams. And the funny thing with Dunn is that he it's the dream state for him was just the way for this to happen. He doesn't really, he doesn't really pay attention to in any way interpreting the dreams. I think he sort of name checks Freud or maybe psychoanalysis somewhere in there, but he doesn't really go into that at all. So he's not interested in interpreting it in any way. But what he does develop is this um, philosophy that he calls serialism. And it's um, to account for the fact that in, the dream state, he, he's um, able to, well, the, the dream state provides his head bits and pieces of the future. I mean, he first thought it just was something strange to him, some weird anomaly, but then he came to understand that, no, this is something that's, um, every happens to everybody. He just has noticed it. And if others like him would write down their dreams, they would notice it as well. But he came to think, to account for it. He said, well, there's what he says, there's time one, which is the everyday time we're in now, you know, nose to the grindstone, the past is behind you, the future's ahead, and you're on that track and that's it. Um, but in the dream state, um, we are somehow free of that, um, free of those shackles as it were, and we have access to both the future and the past and the present. And, uh, but it's all, it's all a bit, it isn't quite as definite as, you know, when we're in the one track on time one. So it's all a bit kind of mixed up and blurred. Um, and that's how, why in the dream state we can um, have, uh, dreams tend to be a, a mixture of, you know, present concerns, flashes of the future and, 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 and past things as well. But it then 
to so, sort of understand that there's another level of time. So it's like a time three. And eventually Dunn has to, he, he's, he can't escape this kind of infinite regress, um, which is for me at least and for others who were understood, but he was the kinds of dreams he was talking about. They had similar experiences, but his sort of philosophy is ultimately kind of unsatisfying because it's kind of this infinite regressive times and times and times. But actually one of the people though that I write about, um, the writer J.B. Priestley, the British writer who no one, he's not read anymore, but he, he was very, very popular in, in the 20th century. Um, and he said, we really just need the first two love, the first three levels of time to, to account for these things. Cause you have time one is everyday time. You know, we're, you know, the one we're in all the, most of the time, time two is the dream state when it's bits of the future, bits of the past, but then there's another level in which you can act. You have a level of agency. This is sort of a level where you have free will and Priestley collected uh, accounts of these precognitive dreams. And one of the ones that he's, he wrote about was uh, there was a woman who she had a dream that she was camping and she had uh, her infant child with her and she had to wash something. So she went down to the stream with the child and whatever she had to wash, but she forgot the soap. And in the dream, she thought, oh, I'll be right back. I'll, everything will be okay. She put the child down and, and the stuff she had to wash and went back to the tent to get the soap. And the when she came back, the child had tumbled over into the stream and drowned. So sometime later, she is camping. Uh, she has the child with her. She has to wash something. She goes down to the stream. She's forgotten the soap, but she's remembered the dream. And she decides not to take any chances. And so she goes back, but she takes the child with her. And so the child doesn't drown. So um, you might say, oh, well, it isn't precognitive because the child didn't drown, but I'll, I, I will admit of less severe criteria, you know, <laughs> rather than a, a drowned child. But so, so Priestley's saying, so she, that, she, that woman in some way, she was in this time three where she could act. And so there's an element of free will. And this, I, I, this is very important because, you know, one of the things you think, oh my God, if I'm dreaming the future, then I, it's predestined. Mm. Um, I, I don't, you know, Although you have to think about, you know, many of things, you know, are predestined. I, I know I, I live in this neighborhood. There's only so many directions I can go when I walk out the door. You know, I'm more or less going to see the same things I see every day. But what I do have some control over is how I respond to that. My own inner world. Um, I have some control over that. Yeah. Now, this um, third time, would that correspond to this sort of... Uh, super super consciousness that you referred to earlier yeah something along those lines i mean yeah i mean you you, you, you i mean you can i mean we all again there's so many accounts of sort of moments out of time right or yeah. or moments where you suddenly feel more alive or more there mm. um more awake than you usually do um could be moments of crisis or moments of great joy or happiness or just randomly you know uh, out, out of nowhere i mean i, I know what happens to me sometimes just just walking right. around in my neighborhood and you, you sort of turn a corner and you see something and um uh i don't know just the isness of it you know uh, hits you sometime and you sort of have a kind of moment of wakefulness and it's um so i mean we don't know that we have this um more this greater control uh because we tend not to know that we have more control over our consciousness than or, or, or we have potentially more control over our consciousness than 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 we know um ordinarily we have 
very little control over our consciousness because we're not aware that we have that control. And so we don't make the effort or, you know, invest the time and energy into uh, gaining that control. But once you sort of have some inkling of that and any of the, you know, variety of different spiritual traditions or, you know, psychological self-development or philosophies, I mean, the, fundamentally, that's what they're sort of aiming at. You know, once you start get some inkling of it, then you realize that, oh, yes, there, there's this interior world that um, is sort of fundamentally mine, you know, more than, you know, uh, anyone else's. And obviously, it's in contact with the world outside and other people and all that. But I'm, I'm, it's not passively plastically available, you know, to be molded by others. I, I, I have a certain amount of control over it. And I think once you recognize that, you have a responsibility to do that you know that's a sort of responsibility to be more awake right yeah it seems like um this is giving us like little glimpses into eternity uh in a sense you know transcending time uh, so mm. uh, I well i mean one of the people that i i didn't get to mention in the book um is this uh, german swiss philosopher gene gebser mm. um who uh, died 1970s 1973 but he wrote this remarkable book called The Ever-Present Origin. And um, just to give you the thumbnail sketch of it, it's, it's this long history of, of, of human consciousness from the earliest, you know, prehistoric, you know, uh, indications to, uh, well, he was, I guess, writing it in the 40s. So, he, he, and I guess, updating it up until his death. So, I guess the, the closest uh, it gets to us, as I said, the 70s. But, um, and he... he, he uh, he talks about these different mutations uh, of time and uh, or different mutations of consciousness throughout human history. But one of the things he said that was going to be taking place more in the time that was ahead of him was what he calls the eruption of time, not the eruption. Eruption is sort of volca volcano, you know, giving up. Um, the eruption is a breaking in. Um, so somehow time is going to break in to our experience more and um i think if he if gebser was around today this itself you know podcasts and streaming and you know the whole idea that you can watch whatever you want wherever you want whenever you want i mean i just to just to date myself i mean i'm, I'm from a certain generation but i when i was a kid if i wanted to watch something on television i had to be if not home at least in front of a television at a certain time, well, that was it. You know, there wasn't, you didn't even have, you know, um, VHS or anything like that where you could record anything. That, that was much later. So just on that kind of everyday level, I, I think Gebser would be vindicated. So um, time certainly, and again, 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 I say, what's the most popular thing on all of, on all of the streaming things? It's time travel shows. I mean, there's some, if you throw a rock in any direction, that's the, I mean, I, I, the BBC here, I've been watching something called Missions, which is a French Anglo, um, you know, joint effort. But again, it's, it's about missions to Mars, but it also has to do with time travel and uh, all that kind of thing. And um, I don't know, I, I, I maybe, you know, the whole, I'm, I'm going to speculate here, you know, but, you know, so much of the previous modern time, at least for me, say, uh, child of the 60s, was to push out into space. And we're still doing that, but 
it's like you know it, it isn't okay we'll go to mars but it's like it's going to be a while before you know what i mean anything really gets so maybe that's why we're getting occupied with time now because time's closer you know you know then then uh, you know i mean it's going to be a while before you set up any kind of living community on mars and you have to figure right. out why you want to do that in the first place yeah, um, yeah. well maybe this interest in time is connected to go back to what you said previously about our technology, because our technology is giving us this sense of timelessness almost, or an escape from time. And, you know, it makes me think of, you know, the medium is the message and that <laughs> the, you know, our technologies affect how we perceive the world. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, uh, yeah, what's, you know, what's McLuhan, it's also uh, Walter Benjamin, you know, he's talking yeah. about, um, you know, um, what is it, art in the age of um, mechanical reproduction, right. um, you know, with the, the, the old, old masters, they were in one place, you know, in the museums, but then when you can get around to, um, you know, reproduc reproducing the images, then suddenly they lose that aura. Uh, but again, again, but I, I, I wonder though. I just wonder: is it an ersatz kind of thing? I, that's, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm in old school and thinking. You know, there's still the interior. You know, the right, the right. Um, uh, the Weg nach innen um, in the old, you know, German mystical kind of way. And I was just rereading, you know, recently uh, Rilke, the Austrian poet, um, and in um, this fantastic, you know, um, great work of his the duino elegies you know he's talking the angels have come to him and they're you know communicating this fantastic poetry but uh but he he, he is he does he just talks about um the human mission to somehow save the fleeting world you know the 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 you know the, the objective the, the outer the external world which is kind of fleeting and just sort of dissipating and we we interiorize it in some way um and that's i i don't know i mean i i don't want to sound to anti whatever it is, but it does seem to be sort of like, that's the opposite in a kind of way. It's sort of like, ooh. So, I mean, it, it's always a difficult, it's always been a difficult task to interiorize, you know, the things to, to, to actualize the old hermetic, you know, dictum that, you know, there's the macrocosm and the microcosm. But if you look in the history of Hermeticism, it's something else I've written about in my other books. It's, it, it is about the imagination and it is fundamentally about widening um, that interior world. And we all have the ability to do that. Um, and I guess, I guess the age old, I mean, it goes back to Plato. I mean, Plato complained about writing, you know, uh, what is it in the Meno? I forget which dialogue it's in of, but you know he the, the just writing you know the, pe people be able to read you know is, is going to be uh damage the memory so there's an age-old kind of you know um critique of i guess tech right, <laughs> the, right, the, the right. Uh, aids you know yeah. but i guess in some ways you know you know there's two sides of that story yeah yeah and that brings to mind i uh, forget who wrote this um i forget the author's name um I think it's uh, something about orality. Um, sorry, but it was this notion that even writing is responsible for breaking up our experience of time because yeah. it makes it sequential. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's uh, some, no, someone I've um, 
talk about in one of my books, Leonard Schlein wrote this interesting book called um, Alphabet and the Goddess. Right. Yeah. Where um, he proposed that there was an early, well, it's, it's similar to what, similar to what you were saying, but yeah, was, uh, he proposed that was an, uh, there was an earlier, well, at least more or less matriarchal kind of image-based or imaginative or intuitive-based um, kind of culture. And that was superseded by the Phoenician um, invention of the, the alphabet and this linearity and then script and all that, which is very kind of boom, boom, straight, you know. And he, he relates it sort of left and right brain kind of struggle along the lines that Emil Gilchrist as well, you know, talks about a kind of rivalry or a kind of struggle between the two hemispheres because um, they perceive, you know, the world in very, very different ways. So, oh uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think there is all that, you know, there is, there's, uh, as should we say it? I mean, you know, this, you could say the senses are all tech as well. You know, you hear in a certain way, you see in a certain way, you know, so, um, but that's, even that is part of what you might call, you know, esoteric psychology. You, you become aware, you know, um, if you look at, I don't know, whatever it might be, someone like Blake, William Blake. Yeah, he's his wild poet. At the same time, all of his poetry is about this kind of epistemology, these, these ideas about how, how the mind interacts with the world, how we understand, how the imagination is at fundamentally at the base of everything and how you know it breaks down into the senses and all that sort of stuff. So um, yeah, it's becoming aware of all that. Right. Yeah, I wish that I had read uh, your book, The Lost Knowledge of the Imagination, uh, before speaking with you. I started A Secret History of Consciousness because I saw both of those books feeding into the current one. And I thought, oh, it'd be so good to have, um, be informed to have a better discussion here on those. Uh, so uh, I know that I'm coming in sort of empty-handed oh, here. Don't worry about it. I mean, you know. Uh, I wish you had read it too. And I wish many <laughs> others had read it as well. So yeah. don't, don't feel alone. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's coming up. I, I, I did purchase a copy of a secret history of consciousness. I just didn't, uh, I wasn't able to finish it before speaking with you. Um, I know that we're speaking of time that we're getting close to the end of our time. Uh, but I did want to ask uh, a question about coincidence, uh, especially in regards to precognition and precog uh, precognitive dreams, because I think that's one of the common ways of explaining them or maybe explaining them away is that it's just coincidence. Well, I mean, you can say that, but after, after you've collected as many of I collected, it just doesn't work out. And I even have a chapter in the book, where I talk about coincidence. And what is a coincidence? You know, what constitutes a coincidence? Because um, lots of things coincide at the same time. You know, we're talking now, um, you know, things are on my table, um, you know, whatever other things are in the room, they're all coinciding now, but we wouldn't call them a coincidence. So there must be some kind of meaning involved somehow. Uh, and I, I asked the question, do they happen to animals? Right. Oh, what a coincidence, you know, to do dogs. <laughs> you know, so, oh, I didn't expect to see you here. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, it seems something that's human, you know, so somehow there's some intention. It's some, just like accidents, you know, accidents happen to, you know, I, I don't, so it's, 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 you know, you start to, what does it actually mean that? And then the, and that is many ways to preamble towards um, meaningful coincidence, which right. Jung coined the term synchronicity. And I have quite a few examples of of that in the book. And one of the ones, the the one I, I always tell the story of is I was, um, this was pre-COVID, 
days and I was on my way to give a talk um, <clears throat> to um, a, a Theosophical Society here in London about um, Colin Wilson, this British writer who's um, uh, influenced me a great deal. And his most famous book was a book called The Outsider. And it's just a study of existential alienation and you know um, geniuses and all this kind of thing. And um, I was on my way to give the talk. And just as I was going, I realized, oh, there's something I needed at the market. I just was passing it and I have enough time. So I popped in and I was in the, in the queue, as they say here, in the, in the line to pay for what I got. And I looked over at the magazine rack and the magazines were so stacked that I, on the cover of Vogue, I could just see uh, that it was Vogue and I could see the, 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 by the top headline for the top article and what it was, the, the outsider. I thought, oh my God, The Outsider on Vogue? And I'm on my way to give a talk about The Outsider? How strange. And I didn't have time to look over and see, you know, what it was about. And so I went back, gave the talk, but I thought this is a weird, you know, kind of thing. And I went back on the way. I actually included it in the talk, but I wanted to see, because I had, I realized, oh, there's something else I needed. So I went back into the market again. And I thought, well, let me go look at that magazine and see what that was about. But they had changed it. So that was the old issue and the new issues were put in. So the only way I would have seen this top little band of the headline of Vogue magazine that said The Outsider as I was on my way to give a talk, if it was, I had to pop into that market just then and I had the sudden impulse to do so. So that sort of thing is that's like, okay, so who arranged that? Right. You know, what, right. what made me go in there just then? And how, how did they... <laughs> How did they put the magazines just then? They would know I would see this because it's inescapable. And there's so many, I have so many of those in the book. And I mean, we all have those kinds of experiences. Um, I mean, the one of the differences between the precognitive dreams and synchronicities is that often the precognitive dreams don't have that meaningful element to them. They're strange that the fact that they're precognitive is, is the strange thing about them. They're often about rather inconsequential sorts of things. And I don't mean to, you know, I mentioned this in some talks I've given with people and they say, oh, there's no such thing as an inconsequential dream. But I, I don't mean to trivialize it, but I mean, you know, uh, as I said, you know, it's, they're not big disaster dreams and they're not the sort of big archetypal dreams, you know, right. where you know, ooh, you've been, you've been in the, the presence of new, some numinous sort of thing mm -hmm. or with the synchronicities where it's like, okay, who arranged that to happen? How did somebody know I was on my way to give a talk about the outsider? Precognitives are just, they're just about strange sort of stuff, which, you know, if it wasn't precognitive, you might not have, you know, noticed it. So it, that, it's a weird, it's a weird, weird kind of thing. And talking about coincidence, and then some coincidences, they pile up, right? Where they're just beyond, you know, belief, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I noticed that I was going to ask you about that, because I think you alluded to or maybe just flat out said it is that when you start paying attention to them they start happening more frequently and, but is it that they're <laughs> happening more frequently or you're just noticing them more well that's a good question yeah, yeah. that's a, that's a very good question we have another hour yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the sort of thing. It's like, you know, well, I mean, you know, well, you know, what's the difference between noticing more and them happening more? Right, right. Because um, uh, we're, we, we are involved in them in some way. I would right. ultimately, you know, your mind is some of us. So are you making them happen in some way or are you noticing them? But I, I, I do think it is the case that if you pay attention, um, whatever is responsible for those 
synchronicity sorts of things for dreams, not only precognitive dreams, but just dreams in general, because I'm convinced that whatever is responsible for the dreams is intelligent in some way. Um, it might not be an, a, 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 an eye, an ego, a kind of focused sense of self or entity in the way that I experience me talking to you as being, but it somehow um, is responsive to um, attention. Yeah. And again, I, 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 we should have some kind of non, I know pronouns are a big thing these days. So right. something, he, she, it, it I, I don't want to say any of them, you know, right. Whom, right. whomever, you know, but yeah. I, I, uh, because um, I should say, I mean, it starts to sound, you know, kind of strange, but it's, yeah. it's, it isn't sort of talking to someone in your head, but it's recognizing that there is some autonomous mm. element of my psyche that I feel does respond to attention I, I, I pay to it. Yeah. And wouldn't that also be whoever, whatever, <laughs> that uh, you can ask uh, for dreams? You know, this is the idea of the dream incubation saying, you mm -hmm. know, look, mm -hmm. I have this problem and please help, you know, send me some guidance. No, it's true. I mean, this is an ancient practice and all that. So yeah, I mean, uh, no, I think it's absolutely true. Um, and one of the things you can learn to do is to hover in that in-between state, this hypnagogic state, mm -hmm. um, which tends to be um, self-symbolic. Mm -hmm. So it's symbolic of you at the time that you're, you're there and asking the question. And so I've... I've, I've um, in June, I'm, I'm doing a, um, a sort of week-long um, seminar um, in Italy, uh, the Pari Center in Tuscany. And I'll be doing a talk about the precognitive dreams and synchronicities, but I'm also sort of doing a workshop on um, hypnagogia, going to the hypnagogo. Uh, and it's, um, but I mean, you know, I said, most speakers don't want their audience to fall asleep, but I'll be doing my best in the workshop. <laughs> <laughs> to put you into a half sleep state. Uh, but, you know, as I've, I've been practicing more myself and, and, and refreshing myself about it, but, you know, I, I have had recently some experiences where, I, oh, yes, I, I, I see, yes. Yeah. What, I, what I started to see was symbolic of my state at the time, you know, sort of different images of my attempting to actually capture the hypnagogic Im images themselves. So, um, I don't know whether it's just mirroring or something that's, um, you know, more, because oh, the dreams is certainly more than just mirroring, I, I would right. say, you know, yeah. there's, and, and again, I, I think it's the same intelligence that somehow is involved with, you know, things like the I Ching, you know, the mm -hmm. Chinese book of changes, which um, I've been using for, for yonks, as they say here, which means ages, a long time. Um, and I've had enough practice with it where, I don't know how this is, you know, how, how are precognitive dreams possible? I haven't the slightest idea. How is it possible that this um, throwing coins down a few times and through doing that, uh, you know, creating these hexagrams, these six, you know, um, line figures and getting a reading from that and how it, it is intelligently actually applicable. And it's more than just the kind of general kind of thing that most skeptics would say, oh, well, that applies to anything. No, it's actually, and the, my evidence for that is there's one in particular called Meng, which is youthful folly. 
And it basically, it's the one you get when you ask the same question twice. Yeah. And it says, hey, I told you the first time, you know, don't bother me. Mm-hmm. And I've, you know, I've importuned it, you know, enough times to know that. So how is that, you know, Jung, you know, Jung tries to explain, he, he's the one who coined synchronicity and it became this kind of all-purpose stencil that he placed over practically all sort of paranormal experiences. But in an unbuttoned moment, um, when he was writing, um, you know, a preface or a commentary about it, I forget which, uh, to the uh, Richard Wilhelm translation, he talks about, you know, the, the spirit of the book, sort of spiritual agencies. And I, I why not? You know, I mean, I'm, I don't know. I, I, I just phenomenologically. Right. Because how do you account for something doing that? Unless you want to say that I'm, I'm just completely, you know, bonkers. Uh, and yeah. that might be the case, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know I, I won't put up too much of an argument against yeah. that. But still, it just seemed to me like oh, I'm not the only one who's had this experience where this, right. this, this strange kind of just book and coins, when you throw right. them, they does seem to have some intelligent response to what you're asking it. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear that quite a bit from people who work with the I Ching. And I've tried, but the symbolism, for some reason, I can't quite connect. Uh, but I take the same approach with Tarot. And you get the same sort of thing. If you ask the same question too many times, the cards will say, you know, stop it. (laughs) Stop. Well, it's it's, it's the same. It's the same with paranormal testing too. You know, there's the whole effect where you get bored. I think there's actually a term for it. I forget what it is, but it's it's some stupid scientific, you know, quasi scientific term, but it's basically you get bored after a while. And it might say, Hey, you know, look, I've told you, you know, uh, and you're trying to force it. And that's, you know, I mean, whatever it, I said, I just have to say it, because if you don't have anything else to use, but whatever it is, it, it's not, it, there's no point in trying to force it, because the whole right. point is, Jung said the hardest thing for us to do is to let something happen. Right. So the whole, the whole point is for us to somehow um, make a space or allow an avenue or create a channel, whatever you, metaphor you want to use to allow this other thing or way or awareness or intelligence to manifest and and it it does involuntarily you know in our dreams that's you know but again they're they're highly symbolic and it's difficult and but i you know i've been at this for quite some time now so um i mean i'm no master but i I certainly do feel like whatever it is there's it's not it's not just you know it's not just a wild goose trail uh uh, you know uh a wild goose chase so yeah, no, I agree. It's it, it's the mystery. And yeah, there you go. And that's worth it itself, I think. Yeah. You know, otherwise you just sort of like, oh my God, what's on Netflix? Right, right, right. Yeah, we need to give time and devotion to the mystery. And um, truly, uh, yeah, yeah, chase it. Well, um, I don't want to bore you, and I know that we are out of time. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 don't, uh, no, no, not uh, at all. Uh, but no, it's been a good conversation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate it. I, I do appreciate your time. Uh, but let me ask the basic questions that I ask at the end of sure. every conversation. Uh, one is what is next for you? What's coming up? You mentioned a um, week-long event in Italy. Right. Uh, no, I'm doing lots of talks. Um, uh, that's what I do uh, most of the time, um, got quite a few. Um, but in terms of a book, um, earlier this year, I, I, I submitted um, a biography of a fellow named Morris Nichol, hmm. who uh, started out as 
follower of Jung, uh, this is back in the 19, 19 teens, 1920s, 100 years ago. Uh, and uh, he was Jung's lieutenant in the, in the UK for a while, but then he changed his allegiance to Gurdjieff and Uspensky, you know, because um, uh, they had arrived um, after the collapse of, you know, Russia and the, the Russian Revolution, the Civil War, and uh, they were in the white Russian refugee camp in Constantinople, and then they made their way independently to England, uh, well, Uspensky first. Uh, and Nicol went to his lectures and basically, excuse me, um, decided that he was going to become a devotee of the fourth way, which is the uh, sort of the name of, of the, the system that Uspensky taught and Gurdjieff was, you know, sort of the originator of. Um, so that's, um, yeah, he's, he's, not, he's not as well known. He's, 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 he, he wrote, um, he's best known for a series of um, what he called the psychological commentaries on the teachings of Gurdjieff and Uspensky. They're like a five or six volume set of um, sort of these sermons that he gave to the groups he had uh, here in England in uh, throughout the uh, well, 30s and 40s. He died in the early 50s. Um, and um, yeah, so we need to hear back from the editor about that. And the next thing, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm kind of at um, um, an open period at the moment. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, see what comes to you. Yeah, didn't you mention, uh, Nicole, in the book, I seem to recall a section where you wrote about uh, discovering Gurdjieff and it was like, yeah, this makes no sense. And then uh, uh, Uspensky, and it's like, eh, not so much. And then Nicole kind of helped you make sense of them. Or was uh, that well, I, I mean, I, I may have said this somewhere, but I mean, no, he's certainly the thing about Nicole is that he, well, again, if you, if you know, if you know the work, if you know, you know, uh, Gurdjieff is, you know, very, uh, as we say it, it's kind of hackneyed to say the crazy guru, but that's kind of right. the easiest way to grab him. He's like a very volatile, you know, uh, character, trickster kind of character. Spensky was a stern kind of logician, um, had the system. Uh, but Nicole, Nicole was kind of like, um, he was kind of like the country vicar. He was sort of like a friendly kind of character. You, you, you could have, you could have, as they say here, you know, in, in, in Britain, you could go, you have a pint with at, at, the, at the pub. And, you know, he, he would he very congenial, uh, uh, sort of type character kind of thing. And um, I think, you know, um, I first read him again, it's a very long time ago. And there was, it's 40 years ago, his book called Living Time. He, he, you know, I, I mentioned that book in Dreaming Ahead of Time because um, he's one of these people that um, Priestley christened time haunted men, um, like Priestley himself and Dunn and Nickel and Uspensky. Uspensky had all these very, very fascinating ideas about time. I mean, one of which was his notion of eternal recurrence, yeah. where rather than reincarnating into another life, when one dies, you, you come back into the same life you've had over and over. So you and I have had this conversation, you know, before, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and your listeners have heard it before, and so on and so on. Um, and um, the whole idea was um, to, um, um, uh, you know, become aware, become awake uh during one recurrence so that you would be able to you know escape it's, it's sort of like escaping the wheel of samsara and all that kind of thing so you know and he also had this notion kind of like a three-dimensional time um which relates to this idea of free will where okay so there's our everyday time which we said before moves in the fourth dimension just the past it's either the past 
moving through the present into the future or the future coming towards us <laughs> into the past, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, and then there's this other time in which all of those different moments in that flow of time repeat eternally forever. So there's a kind of eternity. But then there's all the other moments, all the other possibilities of those moments that weren't actualized. And this is the sixth dimension. This would be a dimension in which we can exercise free will. And so if you become awake, if you wake up, you know, no longer are asleep or mechanical, um, in this life, there are certain crossroads and certain kind of points um, in, in your timeline where you can make a choice that would be different than the one you'd made before. And you can actualize a different different potential, a different possibility. So just like, you know, the woman in the dream, you know, right. she could have, she could have said, oh, that was just a dream, you know, whatever, or no, but she didn't, you know, she's, oh God. So, you know, um, she actualized a different possibility and altered, altered the timeline. Right. Right. Yeah. And yeah, that has echoes of Nietzsche because he also talked about the eternal recurrence of this. Yeah, it was more of a test for Nietzsche. It was more of a test because he, he said, right. if you wanted to change anything that you, you sort of, you know, you, you weren't tough enough or you wouldn't, but he, right. he, Nietzsche himself himself said that he, he himself could not actually affirm it right. in the same way that Zarathustra says to, but no, that's the thing. Right. It's kind of, yeah, in, in um, actually, it's the earlier book. It's um, the the gay science um, where there's um, you know the sort of uh, what you know what would you say if you know a spirit came to you at midnight and said this life that you've lived you know up until now you will always live forever and ever right. you know would this be you know this crushing burden or would it be your crowning moment would you say encore so that's that's the amor fati where you know you're strong enough to do that and it's it's a kind of affirmation of you know. Mm -hmm. But Nietzsche had experienced those moments, though, um, coming strangely coming out of his convalescence. You know, he was he was ill. I mean, it, when you think about Nietzsche, Nietzsche was this, he was the most wretched individual in the world at the time, and he's writing about how to affirm life mm -hmm. uh, against you know um, the pessimists and romantics who were trying to escape from it, or even you know someone like Uspensky who wants to escape the wheel of life. And, and so Nietzsche had, cause he, cause he experienced these incredible moments of well-being and zest. He says, this, this, this yay saying, and um, they mostly came after these bouts of illness when he was uh, convalescing and the health was coming back to him. And he would feel this Dionysian, you know, uprising of great vitality. And um, this was, this was, this was why he said the Greeks, Greeks and the Greeks invented tragedy not because they found life so sad and all that, but because they 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 could even affirm it. You know, the, the they found life so um, what do you want to call it? Uh, they enjoyed it so much they could even affirm the tragic elements in it and the aspects of it against what he perceived to be the Christian kind of renunciation of life, and you know, um, you know the renunciation on the cross and all that so but uh, yeah no it's um yeah sorry there's a little bit on Nietzsche there yeah no that's okay I, you know the thing that always comes to mind is the line from Woody Allen you know great that means I have to sit through the ice capades again <laughs> um, no if you were awake just, you don't have you know you have to you can just work you know there's these are all different sort of you know ways to achieve you know look at it but uh, yeah. yeah okay 
So uh, where is the best place for people to find you online and to find out about your upcoming events? Uh, well, I mean, I, I'm on Twitter and Facebook. Um, i got a web, well, sort of a blog. It's just uh, uh, my name, garylockman.co.uk. And I, I post things there. So, you know, it's not, it's, it's um, you know, I'm not hard to find. Okay. I think if you just Google me, you'll get more than you probably want. All right. Well, wonderful. Well, Gary, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Today. Uh, it's been a great privilege to speak with you. I oh, enjoyed pleasure. this very much. Thank you. Take right, care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Too. Bye. And that's a wrap on episode 40 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you're a part of my YouTube audience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help. If you have a minute to spare, consider posting a short but positive review and please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please uh, give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I've been trying my best to release episodes every week and would like to continue doing so. I'm also working on creating additional video content for the YouTube channel, including some more book reviews, uh, educational videos on uh, topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, um, the religious response to the climate crisis. But these, that extra content takes a lot of time and work. If you would like to support me in creating free and credible material on YouTube and continuing with this podcast, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find a link for that in the video description or show notes. Your support makes this podcast and my work possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be at peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.